Um, in just a minute, you can make your way to the book of Nehemiah. Several years ago, a man by the name of Wesley Autry was traveling uh, to drop his daughters off at home before he headed to work in New York. They were traveling by the subway, waiting for the train to arrive, uh, gathered with hundreds of other people waiting for that train. And while they were standing there, not too far down from them, um, in the waiting line, there was a man that all of a sudden went into convulsions. And uh, he fell into the tracks. Um, where only just a few seconds away, there was a train approaching. The man was clearly unconscious, couldn't do anything to save himself. Hundreds of people were looking on, and within a split second, Autry pushed back his daughters, leaped into the train tracks where the man was, covered himself, covered the man in time as the train was coming to a screeching halt. Unfortunately, the train didn't stop in time. And so about five cars deep, there was Autry and this man underneath the train, the train going over his body about just millimeters over him. The train came to a stop. No one knew what was going to take place and what they were going to find when they began to dig under the train, and they found two people alive in that. It was a fascinating moment. It was an incredible rescue and heroic move by Wesley Autry that day. The news reporters were interviewing, of course, after that, asking him why, why he did it. And listen to what he said. I just saw a concern, and I decided I needed to do something about it. Now, we may not face circumstances like that on a daily basis or likely ever in our lives. But daily, every single one of us face circumstances where we have to make a choice. We have to answer the question, does it concern me? Is this a moment and is this an event? Is this a circumstance that concerns me? Activity and involvement risk on my part is required. You've seen the TV shows and videos that kind of terrify us about moments like that. On YouTube and Facebook and on TV, you see these fake scenarios they are set up. They make me so nervous. Um, these fake scenarios were, are set up to stage people to be in some sort of either conflict or crisis or something happens while in the background there are video cameras videoing other people's response. And so sometimes it'll be a situation where there's like someone bullying somebody and they just want to see the crowd's response, how different people respond. And so some people respond really heroically. And they step in, they step up, and they, they back the other person down. They, and sometimes it's the oddest people. It's not the big people. It's not the strong people. They'll just be somebody that will stand up for this person that's being harassed. And then you see, on the other hand, just people watch. You see people just kind of look the other way. Yeah, I get nervous about this. Like, I'm so nervous that if I ever walk up on a situation like this, I'm going to end up on national TV. So it's like driven me to always like feel like, yeah, I, think, I think I need to do something heroic. Like if there's ever a wallet on the ground, I don't ever just walk by it because I don't want you to find your pastor on national TV one day neglecting someone that needs help. You know, we face circumstances like that. You face circumstances like that. I'll never forget, um, I was probably about 10 years ago. I was in Africa on a mission trip. I'd been there a few times. I'm sharing the gospel with people 
trying to plant churches, people that never heard the name of Jesus, one of the poorest countries in the world. And I'm going about with my interpreter, and we're in this village, and sharing with the family, seated out on a mat with this mother and her children. And we sit there and share the gospel with them, and they pray to receive Christ, believe the message. And then afterwards, the mother stops us and says, hey, can you pray for my child? Well, I look at the, other, the children that we're sending there, and I thought, well, what could be wrong with these kids? I mean, they've been running all over the place the whole time. They look just fine, normal kids. And so I say, well, what's the concern? Well, my child's very sick. And I thought, how could these kids be sick? And she points to my other side on the mat. And I didn't realize it, but sitting next to me, laying next to me on the mat that I was sitting was, was a, a blanket I had just assumed that under that blanket was something like grain or corn or something like that that they were trying to keep the wind from blowing. But as I looked when she pointed, I saw the blanket slightly move. And the mother comes up to the blanket and she pulls it back and there is one of her sons. He was about three years old, which kind of stuck me at the time because my oldest son was about three years old at that time. And she asked me to pray for him. I put my hand on that little boy. And I still to this day have never felt a human being that hot. I prayed for him, asked that God would do a miracle and God would do something to heal this child. I mean, I pray with everything in my might that right then and there God would heal this child. And after we prayed, I, through my interpreter, asked him what was wrong, asked the mother what was wrong. She said that he has, he has malaria and there's nothing that we can do. And I said, well, what do you mean there's nothing that you can do? I'm like taking malaria medicine right now. There's certainly medicine out there. Oh, the medicine's too expensive for us and we cannot afford the medicine. So I looked at my interpreter and said, how much is the medicine? Certainly we can get this child medicine. And he said, it's very expensive for her. It's $1. One dollar? I get a hamburger for one dollar. Well, let's get him some medicine. I mean, I mean, I've got all sorts of money. We could certainly figure a way out and so forth. Where's the medicine? That's the clinic. It's at the clinic, so on and so forth. And so I'm going to give this family this dollar, this money to, to buy this medicine. I give them several dollars so they can buy more medicine to help this, this, this young boy out. And uh, they look at me and say, well, well, they also have to have transport to get the medicine to the clinic. clinic is very far away. And likely the closest clinic doesn't even have medicine, so they're going to have to travel really far, and that's more expensive than the medicine. Well, how much is how much is a taxi? And by taxi, I meant a bicycle that the person can sit on the back of and go. That would be two dollars. It's just a small thing, but at that moment, I realized this involves me. That this concerns me. That day to take action, to, to do something. You know, throughout our lives, we're put in situations and scenarios where, where we're called to action, where, where you can't go through this world with the problems that are in it, with the situations that we can't take serious. The question, does it concern me? We live in a city full of lostness, full of issues, full of people with needs. You and I can't live in this city. You and I can't drive to this church 
and not ask the question, do the problems of this city, do the issues of this city, does the lostness of this city concern me? The church you're sitting in right now is in the midst of one of the most unique places and vibrant places in all of this country. Yet at the same time, this place is desperately needing someone with truth, someone with the gospel. Does that concern you? You know, when it comes to the vision of a church, when it comes to the purpose of the church, it begins with a large concern. And then asking yourself, does that concern, does that issue concern me? So the question that I want to pose to you today both as individuals, but also together as a church, does it concern you? Does it concern us? And to explore that question, I want to take you to a story of a really interesting man, a man by the name of Nehemiah. He's an Old Testament figure, a late Old Testament figure that showed up on the scene late in the days of the Old Testament. But he too faced a scenario, a circumstance, a situation that he had to ask the question and answer the question, does it concern me? There was an issue that was placed in front of him that was heartbreaking and difficult where from where he was and who he was, he had to ask, does this concern me? So if you would this morning, we're just gonna look at the first three verses of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter one, and I want to introduce you to Nehemiah. I want to show you the problem, and I want to show you the question that he asked and the things that were built into the question. So if you would stand in honor of God's word this morning, Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaleah. Now it happened in the month of Shizlev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble. And shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. You can be seated this morning. Now, the story of Nehemiah and the story of this situation is, first of all, the story of a man who was Nehemiah. We know a little bit about his family, which doesn't really register much with us and doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But one of the things that we know the most about him is actually at the very end of the chapter where he closes chapter 1 out in verse 11 by a description of who he was. I was cupbearer to the king. Now, the idea of a cupbearer kind of sounds like this guy was a little bit of a waiter. Like he, he stood around like a butler and he brought the king drinks. You know, maybe he was uh, just a waiter. Can I fill your drink? What would you like to drink and so forth? But that's not really what a cupbearer was. A cupbearer was actually someone that would have been near the king at all times. A 
close figure to the king, a confidant and a right-hand man to the king, more than just a butler uh, Nehemiah was, which was really interesting because Nehemiah was a Jew. Nehemiah was a foreigner. And to have this privileged position was a unique thing for him. He stood in a unique place close to the king. He heard what was going on. He had a personal relationship. When, when there was downtime, he and the king would probably joke and talk and probably played fantasy football together or something like that in their day. Close to the king. It was a great position. It was a privileged position. It was a comfortable life. That is until someone tried to poison the king because one of his primary responsibilities was before he handed the cup to the king, he was to drink the cup, just briefly. And if he stayed alive, then the king would drink and he'd be fine. But if he died, the king would say, I don't think I'm gonna drink that. Had a very unique job. It was a comfortable life. It was a plush life. And in the, the state of the Jewish nation and the Israelites of that day and time, it was one of the top positions that you could have close, wealthy, well-to-do, well-off, comfortable, and ordinary. There wasn't anything special about Nehemiah. There wasn't anything strong about Nehemiah. Just a guy who's been given a privileged opportunity and a comfortable lifestyle. The story of a man. Just an ordinary, comfortable, privileged man. It's also a story of a time. It tells us when this took place. Now, it happened. The question that he brought up happened, and it tells us when it happened. It says it happened in the month of Shizlev, which is a Hebrew month, in the 20th year. So you have two dates there. You have the 20th year of something, and you have a Hebrew month, which shows us the dichotomy of where Nehemiah was. Now, Nehemiah was a Jew. Jews had their own calendar. And so he was counting and marking the day along with his ancestors and other Jews about when it was. It was in the month of Shislev. But the second thing would have been that it was in the 20th year. Now, it wouldn't have been strange if you were looking at like 1st and 2nd King or 1st and 2nd Chronicles for it to say something like in the 20th year. In the 20th year of what? The 20th year of what he mentions in chapter 2 at the very beginning of that chapter, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is having to count time by two calendars. On the one hand, this month, this Jewish month, but on the other hand, so the rest of the world recognize it's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And that may not seem like much, but you take into factor that for centuries, Jews have counted years by the length of their own kings. But that hasn't been the case in Nehemiah's day for a long time. The longer were they counting years by King David and King Solomon and King Jeroboam and so on. They're counting years, they're watching years go by by the measure of the world. Not by the measure of God's people and God's nation, but now by the measure of the world. It was a trying time. The year at this time is probably actually 444. And those of you that know a little bit about Bible history and what took place in 587, the nation of Israel was taken captive and exiled by the Babylonian Empire. 
And this is about 140 years removed from that. The Persian empires come in. And so now you have a nation that's been exiled, spread out all over the world. Jerusalem has been sacked, the capital city of the Jews, and now they're spread out. They got nothing. They have no identity. They have no close connection. They are under the reign and realm of nation after nation, empire after empire. Fifty years after the Babylonian conquest, the book of Ezra accounts this some were allowed to return. It was a sad time for Israel, and it had been years, years, decades, over a century since they had experienced anything great. Time had passed a lot of it. And in the midst of that time, Nehemiah asks a question in verse 2. His brother, who is returned from the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, has a question for him. You ever asked a question of somebody, and when they give you the answer, you regret asking the question? I wish I hadn't asked that. I mean, sometimes it happens with the most simple questions. How are you doing today? And they really tell you how they're doing. I wish I hadn't asked. Because what you were supposed to say was, I'm good. That's the standard answer. That's all I was looking for. That's what you were supposed to say. But that's not what you, you told me the truth. And oh my goodness, what am I supposed to do with this information? Oh, I'm sorry I asked. Might have been the case for Nehemiah. Nehemiah seems to ask this question from somewhat of a positive. Hey, hey, tell me about the Jews who escaped, who have survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. Tell me how they're doing. Are are things rebuilding? Are things getting better? How's it coming? Do you you think there's a day that I might get to go see it and we might might be back on top? Just just give me a little word on, on the good things that are happening. But that's not the answer that we see. You see, it's a story of a man, a story of a time, but it's also a story of people. The answer is this in verse 3. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble. What Nehemiah, Nehemiah finds and what this story is about is a group of people, a lot of people, who are in deep trouble, deep shame, and deep difficulty. These people were God's people. They were God's chosen seed. His people were his glory, and those people Nehemiah's brothers and sisters, whom he's never met, but he shares kinship with and he shares the Lord with, are in trouble and shame. But then we also see that it's a story of walls. It's not just the people that are in trouble, but there's something that makes the people in trouble, something that doesn't help the people out any. And that's what we see here. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. I think of a wall, I think of no big deal. So a wall's down and a gate's on fire. I, I have this picture in my mind of, of my fence or your fence having a plank fall out. Oh my goodness. Fido might get out. That's not the picture. Why does this matter? It matters because with the walls down and the gates burned, the city had no future. A city without strong walls in that day and time and gates had no way of protecting itself from future invasion. 
empire after empire, nation after nation, province after province could just plow through this city unrestricted and this city was completely unprotected. What was low and what was poor was going to stay low and poor because they had no walls, they had no gates. Walls matter. Because this nation was up for grabs to the first nation hungry enough to simply invade it. This was God's city and its future was bleak. There was a concern, a concern of the remnant, a concern of reproach, and a concern of the ruin. Nehemiah has to ask the question at this moment in time, does this concern me? He heard news he wasn't expecting. He heard news he didn't want to see. There was a great concern, a great problem, but did that concern Nehemiah? Well, the rest of the book answers the question. As you fast forward, you see Nehemiah broken over what was taking place, broken over the ruin, broken over the trouble and shame. You see in chapter two, Nehemiah get the courage and take the risk to do something about it. You see Nehemiah begin to lead and the rest of the story shows us the risk that he took the effort that he put in. He goes and inspects the wall. We, we see in Nehemiah chapter two, verse 13 and 17. He sees the walls, they're broken down just as described. He gives us a great description of just how ugly it was, and just how bad it was. And in verse 17, he says to the people, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ru ru ruin and its gates are burned. Nehemiah was burdened with the concern. He was burdened with the problem so that he is so burdened that he acts that it does concern him, and he must do something. For Nehemiah, it all boils down to one question. Does it concern me? Does the purpose of God, does the kingdom of God, does God's plan for this world concern me? What about the future of his people? Does that concern me? What about his glory in this world? Does that concern me? And it's the same question Today, you and I have to answer. Does it concern me? Does it concern us? When we look at the story of Nehemiah, it's almost as though we're looking in the mirror at the story of us. I make the application this morning that we're looking at the story of First Baptist Charlotte and our Jerusalem. I mean, consider the story of the man that Nehemiah was. You and I are no different from Nehemiah. Ordinary people. There's not an extraordinary person in this room. Sorry to burst your bubble. But we're all pretty ordinary. We're all pretty plain. And as I look across the room, we're all pretty okay. We live comfortable lives. We live plush lives. Everything's good with us. You got something to eat this morning. You got something to eat later today. Most of you have a place to live, I think. You drove here. You got clothes on, I think. Everybody's good in this room. We're living a pretty comfortable, pretty good life. And man, listen, it's comfortable in here. We got the AC set down to 72. It's pretty nice. Would you like to go outside and have this service outside? No, why would you do that when we have this awesome AC unit? And for your convenience, we've got these wonderful, 
The back's a little hard. I'm getting used to that. But we've got these cushions on this pew. Some of you remember the day when pews didn't have any cushions. We got that for you. It's pretty comfortable, pretty plush life. You see, we're not much different than Nehemiah where we stand in life, who we are. Most of you in this room know Jesus Christ. We're the people of God, so we've got our salvation secure. We've got our eternity secure. It's also a story of time. We find some similarities. In fact, you could look and see in Nehemiah's day that the conditions haven't changed a whole lot since then. Fast forward about 2,500 years. And this world measures time by its own way. Our world doesn't measure life by God's activity, but by its own activity. Maybe we could also ask the same question. When was the last time we saw God move? Israel hadn't seen God move in 150 years. What about First Baptist? Most of us define our lives by events that happen and things that take place. We just this past week passed another day, another year where we remember something that took place 18 years ago. We mark time by different events that take place. We go about our business, the clock is ticking. And this world, from the moment the alarm clock goes up to the moment the lights go out at night and everything in between is not concerned about the activity and work of God, the world we live in. Yet it, at any moment it's looming it's waiting that God could blow the whistle, send his son Jesus Christ back, and souls must be accounted for. Amen. It's also the story of a question, and that question is about the same thing that Nehemiah asked the question about. It's about people. See, Nehemiah builds a wall, but the wall is driven by people here. It's the concern for the people that drives him to rebuild the wall. It's the protection and ministry to the people that drives him to build the wall. The question was about people. I want you to understand something, church. A church, our church, bottom line, is about people. The gospel ministry of the church and the ultimate purpose of the church is about people people. It's not about buildings. It's not about programs. It's not about budgets. It's not about numbers. It's not about recognitions. It's about people. The ministry of the church is about people. It's about the people of this world. And when you look at the people of this world, listen, there is trouble and there is shame. We live in a culture and in a world of moral chaos, of godlessness, and in that world and culture that's right here, the church has lost its voice. We live in a community, a very unique community. 
We call it our 301 here at First Baptist. Our three mile radius. And in that three mile radius, there's 110,000 people and more. It's a lot of people stacked in in here. And those people are in trouble. Because over 90,000 of them likely don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Look at the needs of this community. Look at the needs of those people in themselves. There's great needs. There's big needs. There's homelessness. There's poverty. There's addiction. There's depression. There's divorce. There's so on and so on and so on. You know, maybe we're not asking the right questions. Maybe we're, we're not talking about the right things. This concern is what drove Nehemiah to do everything he did. This concern is what he left with. When he left that conversation right then, he left with a concern, a great, it's what kept him up his life. It's what he wrote in his journal. It's what he thought about this concern over the need of these people. It's what drove him to everything. At, at Nehemiah's church, as he's walking out of the sanctuary, as he's walking down the hallways to Sunday school, this is the topic of conversation that he's having. As he's sitting down in his small group or his life group, this is what he's chit-chatting about. The issue, the problem, the concern. As he's typing that email up to his minister, this is what the topic is about. As he's laying his head on his bed at night and he's lifting up things before the Lord, this is number one, the concern, the need. I wonder if that's the same conversation that we're having in the hallway. I wonder if that's the same conversation that we're having in the Sunday school class. I wonder if that's the same chit-chat that we're having in life group. I wonder if that's what we're writing letters about. If, I wonder if that's what burdens us at night when we lay our heads on our bed before the Lord. The need, the concern, does it concern me? You know, all of us have been bitten by something, right? Everybody in this room has gotten a mosquito bite, right? You've got, some of you are like glue for mosquito bites. Like you have some attracted to you. And when mosquitoes are biting, they're biting you up and down. How do you treat a mosquito bite. What's the proper way to treat a mosquito bite? There's only one way. You know what it is? That's it. I mean, you could throw some Benadryl in that, but at the end of the day, you know what you're going to be doing? This right here. You're going to be scratching right there. You're going to be scratching and scratching until it goes away. That's the miracle medicine right there, your fingernails. You scratch a mosquito bite, it goes away. Bedding. This number would go way down. How many of you have been bitten by a snake? You see, you don't treat a snake bite the same way that you treat a mosquito bite, do you? Oh, it's just a copperhead, no big deal. I'll itch this thing out. No big deal. Put a little Windex on it. Benadryl, we'll be fine. When we talk about the needs and the concerns of our community, 
of this world. Listen, friends, it is not a mosquito bite. It is a bite of a serpent whose venom is eternal. And the only anti-venom is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's what we're tasked with. That's what we have to do. Does it concern you? So I'm going to take this conversation this morning to our own walls, our own community, our own place. The church that we're in, and there's some bad news, but there's also some really cool good news. We've mentioned it, we've talked about it, but for the past 20 years, this church has been on a steady, continual, consistent decline. To where we've seen our lowest point ever. In, in every way that you would look, we've seen our lowest point ever. Maybe the morale's not there, but the people aren't, and the money's not, and the ministries aren't. But we're seeing something happen. We're seeing God begin to work amongst us. Amen. And this year, we have seen that decline shift and turn. As we've seen God move and God bring us new people, as we've seen people reach their one and bring them, as we've seen God move, we've begun to see that change and turn. Well, one of the concerns and one of the issues that we see within this church is that we see a congregation that is getting older. Now, let me tell you something about a congregation getting older. It is a natural thing to take place. Every single one of us is in that process. We're all helping that number get older. You were younger just 30 minutes ago, and now you're older, and so we're all helping out that process. So it's a natural progression for a church to naturally fight the age factor where the average age of the church climbs unless there is a reaching and an inputting of a younger generation. And so we've seen our average age climb. Why? Because for some time there's not been an inputting of a younger generation, of the next generation. But, but in recent days, we have seen that begin to change. I don't know the exact number. I don't know exactly how, how much that number's ticked down just a little bit. But we're seeing God do something amongst the young adults in our church. And just even in this year alone, we've seen so many faces of this millennial generation begin to come in and plug in and join and be a part. Just last weekend in our service, we had a family that, that started visiting earlier in the year. And their first visit, they live here in Uptown. In their 20s, their first visit, they rode their scooters. They live that close. They saved gas. You paid a whole lot more to be here than they did. They've plugged in, they've gotten involved, and here they are linking up with us as part of our family. We're seeing God do some incredible things like that. 
But as you inspect the walls, as you get a snapshot, we're seeing other things, our building, our base, our home that we minister from is in deterioration, is outdated. We see carpet that's been there for a long time, paint that has been peeling for a long time, stains that are on the roof for a long time, things that haven't been updated for a long time. But the cool thing is, is that this place is still being used every day. Not a day goes by that there isn't ministry happening here in the walls of this church. Particularly on the first floor and the third floor. Every day, those floors are used for ministry. Ministry to our 301 in particular. Throughout the week, we have around 100 children that attend our We We Day preschool. Of those 100 children, did you know that 95 of them are not connected and coming to our church. Taking advantage of the ministry, being part of the ministry. We're offering a service and we have the opportunity to encounter them on a daily basis. Have 180 kids from our 301, that low income bracket, struggling families who get a top notch private Christian education here on our third and second floor every single day of the week. God's using this place. And I think there's so much more that God wants to do. We talked about some initiatives that we were bringing out, some things that we were talking about. Just a few months ago when we laid out this vision, this idea for 301, we talked about who's your one, and we've seen so many people commit to reaching one person. We've heard story after story of people having that conversation, bringing their one, inviting their one, beginning to pray and engage them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about Serve Uptown, and to this point, we've already had three of them. We're nearly, probably over, I don't know, somewhere in the range of 800 people have been served here in Uptown through these ministries. We have another one, the weekly one that begins on Tuesday mornings is kicking off this week. And every Tuesday, we'll minister to people who are coming out of these apartments, headed to these high rises. We talked about strengthening the partnership to our 301 ministries. We've got some strong partnerships that minister to the deep needs of our 301. And over the past several months, our missions committee has been seeing how we can get more involved. Our life groups have stepped up to to create partnerships with them. We've already seen life groups serve at these places where they weren't serving before and getting involved. And then we talked about a new service, creating another venue, another opportunity outside the Sunday morning time to connect with a more millennial generation. We haven't said much about it, but, but this past Tuesday, we had our first launch team meeting. Grant and Caleb have been recruiting young adults from our church and from outside to help us with this ministry, to be a part of this service. And, and we, I think we were expecting like maybe 10, 15 people. And Tuesday night, uh, for our first meeting, we had 52 Amen. young adults. God is moving. Amen. But the concern and the need is still there. So what's next? Well, what's next is we continue to engage and we continue to push this, but I wanna give you something else, church. Something else that I think that God is wanting us to do 
to strengthen the base here to prepare ourselves for what God's gonna do next. There are several areas within our church that are heavily used every day through ministry. There are several areas in our church that, that specifically we encounter the 301, our Jerusalem, the most. And it happens to be that those spaces are the most outdated spaces within our building. I think God is wanting us to take a step, move forward to improve them, to strategically plan and improve those areas so that we put our best foot forward, so that we show that we're alive, so that we show that we're ready for ministry, and so that we minister to them even better ways. And so over the past several months, several of your committees have been working together. Your strategic planning committee has led this the whole way through. The finance committee has been involved and the housing committee is involved. And next week, those committees led by the strategic planning committee will be bringing a motion to the church at our church conference on Sunday night to begin Project 301. And what Project 301 is, it's a, it's a focus on the wall. It's a focus on the base. It's a focus on where we are. To give attention to the areas that we're using the most, that we're encountering the 301 the most. There's been certain parts of our church that have been modernized and update and brought up to standards, but there's other parts of our church that are used every day that haven't been. And so there'll be focus in this modernization, in this reno of the first floor of the third floor, our nursery area, our children's area. There'll be attention brought to our fellowship hall, there'll be attention brought to our conference room, and there'll be attention brought to the entrance areas in that. Also needed, because of the day and time we live in, is an update to our security system churchwide. And so we'll bring attention to that. We'll do playground updates. We'll even, in this project, refurbish the bell tower. You know we have a bell tower and that those bells have never rung. You know why I say that? Because they're not bells. There's no bells up there. I don't know if you do that or not. Some of you have been here a long time. Where are the bells? Why aren't we ringing the bells? Well, there's no bells up there. There's these big speakers. And they haven't played in over 10 years. And as a result of that, as a result of just time, they've worn out and they don't operate at all. And so we've included that in the project because they're speakers. We can play anything we want to. I won't even say it. We can play Chris Tomlin or Hillsong or whatever we want to on the hour, or we can make the sound of bells, whatever we want to in that. But to let people know that we're here. And there's a number of other things that we have planned in this whole project. You'll get the details about it next week. But our strategic planning committee is bringing this motion to the church, asking you to consider being a part asking this church to move forward with this. We say, where are we gonna get the money? Well, that's a great question. Does it concern you? You see, together we'll raise the money. And as we do, we'll proceed. As God's people feel the concern on them to do something tangible, strategic, and risky, for the sake of reaching the lost. One of the cool things about this is that for every 
dollar we receive, every piece of revenue that we receive for this, one-tenth of that will go towards our partners who are reaching deepest into the needs of 301. So it's not just a project for the building. It's not just a project for the ministries as we try to reach out. It's a tangible project that we're going to be able to do more financially for these ministries that are going deep than ever before. And so the question is, does it concern you? Does the need, does the lostness, does this world concern you? There's two responses to that question, and the first response is this, nah, it doesn't. It doesn't concern me. It doesn't involve me. It doesn't concern me. I'm good. I don't care enough to take action. My concern, what concerns me, is my life, my way, my stuff. That's response number one. I, I think that in this, we could all probably agree that's probably not the right response. Amen. Response number two. It does. And I do care. And I am willing to do something about it. Does this concern you? What is God asking you? What is God asking us to do about the concern in front of us? There's some we've already done, but I think God wants us to take it a lot further than where we've gone. So I'm excited about sharing that with you next week. You'll be handed some materials with the specific motion, a list of the items, an explanation of things, and then in our business meeting on that Sunday evening, we'll have time to discuss that motion will be brought forth and we will vote to proceed and to begin to raise the money together and begin the project together. Does it concern you? With every head bowed and every eye closed.